Welcome back to the Trojan Talk podcast. It's been a while. It's been about a month. We just wanted to let the dust settle on the off-season movings and shakings. And now that that's happened, lots to talk about. I'm Ryan Young, as always, and I will be joined, as always, by my trusty co-host, uh, the former USC quarterback, our Trojansports.com analyst, Max Brown, to talk about the hiring of offensive line coach Clay McGuire, which, as of taping on Thursday, is not has not been officially announced yet, but we know that that's in the works. Uh, the hiring of head strength and conditioning coach Robert Steiner from Notre Dame, where he was an assistant there, and now comes to USC with the spiffy title of Director of Football Sports Performance. I like the sound of that. We'll get into that. The addition of Marshall Charrington to the recruiting department from Cal. Maybe a a lower-key move in terms of headlines and news-wise, but pretty significant in its own right, and we'll explain why. And we can't not discuss the end of the controversial, heavily criticized Larry Scott era in the Pac-12 as the conference officially announced on Wednesday night that it will move on from its embattled longtime commissioner and hire a replacement by summer. So lots to cover. But we have a special guest. USC starting quarterback Keaton Slovis joins the show for his second time, his second appearance on the Church and Talk podcast. He was on back in May. We had one of the best interviews we've done on this podcast, on this feed, one of my favorite episodes, period. And we didn't scare him away that time, so he's, he was willing to come back again uh, this week and talk with us about, first of all, the health of his shoulder, which he injured on the final play of the season, and just his uh, his reflections and, and self-analysis of his 2020 season, what he's focused on this offseason, uh, an interesting revelation on his part of who he's going to be working with this offseason, and uh, look ahead to 2021 and talking about the offense and a lot of things. Great conversation with Keaton Slovis. Happy to have him back on the show. We're going to start there. So you'll hear from myself and Max Brown in the final hour and 10 minutes of the program. But we're going to start with the quarterback of the moment, Keaton Slovis. Without further ado, here he is. All right, very excited to welcome back into the show, back onto the Trojan Talk podcast, star quarterback Keaton Slovis, who joined us in May. It was maybe our best podcast of the spring and summer, and he's back again. Keaton, how are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for being here. I have to start with, uh, I guess, the thing that fans are most curious about, which is just the health of your shoulder. Obviously, the end of the Pac-12 championship game versus Oregon, you got taken down pretty hard, and Clay Helton made it clear that had there been a bowl game, you would not have been able to play in it. Where do things stand right now with with your shoulder? Uh, Pretty good. You know, I think uh, if I had to throw today, I'd probably be able to. Um, Still not, I don't know if it's 100%. You know, feeling wise, it still feels a little sore at times, but just a, a AC sprain, so nothing serious. Um, you know, I feel uh, I feel pretty good. Again, I've been moving the arm around a bit, and rehab's been really good in the uh, this break, so it's it's really good. And hopefully, uh, we'll we'll take much less time in the elbow to get back. Well, that was the next question. I was going to ask how it compared to that, and obviously, that was a more involved a situation with the elbow strain last year. In the moment when on that hit, 
was there was there more fear on your part that oh no uh, what just happened here or did you kind of know it was going to be relatively minor um i had no idea honestly i thought i didn't really feel it at first you know the hit kind of hurt in general a lot um so i and i knew the game was over so i was more upset about that and then you know once the adrenaline kind of went away i felt all the pain in my shoulder and um but again it was the last play of the game so i wasn't super worried i was really more so worried about some seriously like a torn labrum or um i don't know what else you could kind of do rotator cuff right but that's all that stuff is super long term so i was just hoping it wasn't that and i kind of realized it would be fine well, good, good. So, so with that said, what is kind of your off-season approach? Are you planning to be active in spring? I know spring ball is pushed back to April now. Do you know what the plan is? Yeah, I think we moved it back a couple of weeks. But, um, yeah, I plan on being active. I plan on being able to throw in a, a week or two here. Um, and, again, like I think the biggest thing last year for me was – um, really trying to get my arm back and um, you know I feel like I got it back but I didn't really get as many reps or not even reps but I feel like I didn't get as much time individual time with my quarterback coach back home as I would have liked so um, really just trying to get with with coaches and uh, you know quarterback trainers and being able to to kind of work on my fundamentals a little bit more and kind of get tuned in especially with my shoulder injury just make sure everything's good going into this year and we have a lot of time to do it so I'm excited looking forward to that. Good deal. Well, I want to look back on this past season. Numbers-wise, very impressive. Again, you averaged 320 passing yards a game, 17 touchdowns, 7 picks. Obviously, there was a lot more scrutiny on you this year than last year, and we kind of asked you about that during the season. But, you know, it's maybe easier to reflect on now that it's over. What was it like dealing with all the questions each week about, is his arm okay? Is it, is it mental? What's going on with that fluttering pass in this game? What was that like to go through in the moment? Um, it was frustrating. Um, it was frustrating because I think everyone kind of saw that it wasn't where it should have been, and I knew it wasn't where it should have been. And uh, I think the most frustrating thing would be at times in practice it was great, and I think at times in the games you could see where, where it could have been and looked good. But it just wasn't as consistent as I liked it to be, and um, again, kind of attributed that to again not not um, not really getting as much time as I'd like. But again, uh, you know, I think the the biggest thing we kind of you know took pride in as a quarterback room was just trying to deal with it and, and, and fight through it because when you're in the middle of the season, there's not a whole lot you can do at that point. You know, you just kind of have to deal with it and and handle it the best you can. And um, I thought for the most part we did that. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting and. I'm not going to dwell on this much longer, but just to tie a bow on it, it was interesting because at the end of some of those games, you were you were at peak form. You were leading those comebacks. You were barely ever throwing an incompletion. That that touchdown to Drake, uh, London, in the first game was one of your best throws. In hindsight, do you think any of it was mental maybe on, on the ones that kind of left the hand weird or mental, mechanical, physical? What was your ultimate assessment in the end? Yeah, I think, I think it's all kind of related, right? So – um, you know, not getting those reps or getting as much reps as you'd like to, um, I think kind of leads to, you know, not being as confident as you can be mentally. And not saying I didn't get a lot of reps in camp, I did. But, um, you know, just whenever you come back from an injury, um, I think you're a little subconsciously kind of kind of protecting it. And, uh, you know, I did change up my throw motion a little bit. So, again, things were a little bit different. Um, and, again, I, I don't know if I was as comfortable as I'd like to be mentally. But, again, you saw once I did get comfortable and settled in, um, you know, things look really good and our offense was cooking. So, again, I just have to get dialed in mentally and, and confident in what I'm doing with my mechanics, with what we're doing as an offense. And you're, you can see our offense can have a lot of success moving forward. 
For sure. It, it's interesting you mentioned that you kind of changed up how you were throwing, and we didn't really talk about that during the season. What was the change you made, and, and was that because of the elbow injury, or was that just because of refining mechanics in general? Um, a little bit of both. So my arm last year, um, and you could probably tell it like at the end of the year, like UCLA game, a few balls weren't um, you know, a little bit underthrown or a little bit inside, whereas they should have been outside. That was because of my arm fatigue. My arm was really tired you know, last year. I know we, you guys asked me a few questions about it. I kind of mentioned bit, it. Yeah, yeah, a little bit, yep. Yeah, so, um, and that that's just something I've always dealt with growing up. Um, you know, I've always been an arm thrower, they call it, so haven't used my lower body and core as efficiently as possible. Kurt would always get mad at me for doing it, but it's just how I did it. Um, but I kind of, you know, Graham and um, the offensive staff was aware of it. Coach Holm was aware of it, and they kind of just, so they protected me a little bit. But moving forward, I remember talking to Graham, like, hey, we need to, Next year, we need to take care of it a little bit, right? And, uh, you know, kind of get ahead of this. Then the elbow injury happened. Um, so then we were kind of really full full force on um, getting the arm better, but also mechanically being more sound. So that's why you see, you know, in the summer, too, I worked a lot on, you know, you don't need to throw the ball as hard as you can all the time. You know, you can, you can, you can, uh, you know, use your hips and core more efficiently and, and uh, get it there. As long as it gets there on time, it's pretty and, and it, uh, it works. But again, that's something Kurt kind of talked to me a lot growing up and being in high school is you don't need to throw the ball a thousand miles an hour. Sometimes you might need to, but 99% of the time, if you're on time and on target, it's going to be okay. But again, most of that stuff wasn't huge mechanical change. It was more so just using the hips and, and legs more efficiently and in a timely manner. And, and, and that's kind of some of the stuff that you're trying to put even more time into this off season. Yeah, definitely. Um, I actually plan on going out to, uh, um, Manhattan area and working with Tom house is, uh, I forget what they're called, uh, and John Beck and all them. They work with all the NFL guys, yeah. and I plan on working with them to, to some extent. And, you know, they're biomechanically, they're the best guys in the business. So really looking forward to working with them and getting getting as in tune as I can. Have they already kind of given you a pre-assessment of some of the stuff they want to focus on, or is that still to come? Uh, not yet, just because I'm able to throw. The first time I'll throw with them will be kind of an evaluation thing, and uh, then they'll go from there. But that's the greatest thing about them is, you know, they're not trying to put your, their stamp on anyone. They're trying to see what you need as an individual and, and uh, you know, try to fix it um, or enhance your abilities as best as they can. But, uh, yeah, I'm really excited because I've never really been with uh, with anyone <laughs> from a biomechanics standpoint that's, that's so renowned as they are. Yeah, uh, very interesting. Well, d- just looking back on the season in general, I'm, I'm curious about how you go about processing a season. Do you go back and watch every game? Do you not do that at all? How, how do you? What's your process? And then, what was your overall assessment aside from the stuff we've just talked about? Just your overall assessment. How did you feel about your performance this season? Um, yeah, I'll go through some time here. Once once I'm able to get back in the facility, I'll look at, at all the concepts. I don't like looking game by game because I think you can kind of get more out of reading concept by concept. You kind of get a feel for how you read a certain concept and. Um, how you did in that certain situation, but you can also watch situations in games too if, if you feel that way. Um, and for me, you know, obviously we did some good things, but um, you know, I feel like there's a lot to grow from last season. And again, you have to keep it in perspective because it was a six-game season. It wasn't you know the most normal season ever. But you know, I want to make excuses for myself. We got I have to play better, and uh, our offense has to execute better, and that starts with me. So I think uh, going forward we can make that happen our offense got a lot of success and you know everyone wants to blame the, the play caller the coaches and you know i really looking back i think if i elevated my game we're not hearing any complaints from from uh, our fans it is interesting because it, it kind of parallels both with your 
arc and, and with Graham's where it's, you know, the 2019 season, it's all new. It's fresh. It's exciting. Everyone's building it up and building it up. And then in 2020, it's, it's getting uh, critiqued and picked apart every week. So I, I kind of hear what you're saying there. Well, let me segue to the offensive line. It's obviously the biggest question on the offense, and there's obviously been a coaching change. I know it's something that you can talk about yet, so we will not get into that. But what I want to ask you, though, is about some of the young offensive linemen who may be competing, guys that you got to see in practice that we didn't. What what stood out to you about some of the young offensive linemen through practice last year, and did any one of those guys in particular really jump out and, and make an impression on you? Yeah, a lot of guys did, especially that freshman group. You know, you got Jonah, uh, Casey Collier, and uh, Cortland Ford. Yeah, they really impressed me, especially that week leading up Colorado and Washington State when they had kind of stepped in and and uh, do grown, grown man's work. And uh, I was really impressed with them, really, especially with, like, Cortland and Casey, you know, just their size coming in. Um, I was really impressed with her freshman. I was, man, who, who are these guys we got? Obviously, uh, Coach did a good job recruiting them. And, uh, again, in practice and, uh, you know, with their game, when they were in the game, I was pretty impressed with what they did as freshmen. So, uh, again, I'm just excited to see their development. You can see, you know, and you see it with every freshman. Um, I think everyone kind of gets more and more comfortable the more time of reps they get. So um, those, those reps last year are really important, but also moving forward, since they know they're going to play a role in this offense, so you're going to see their confidence and uh, their playing uh, really just get better. So now that we're we have some good distance on it, tell me what was your your honest feeling going into that game when the O line couldn't practice for really two weeks and and maybe got one walkthrough session in before. What what apprehension did you have about what you were walking into that game? Oh, man, I don't think people realize that was, that was like the whole season in a nutshell. You could point to the Washington State game. The whole week we're. Uh, we, we had only seven on seven because we're not allowed to be allowed around the O-linemen and like they're trying to give them as much time with coach as possible to get them prepared. So I've never had a whole week where I didn't even like see an offensive lineman in my drill, you know, so we're doing seven on seven. Uh, our team period seven on seven. The O-line just by themselves trying to get as much information as they can. And I remember going to that game Saturday. Finally, we get some of our guys back. But we still only have, I think we only got Brett, um, was it Brett Voorhees and uh, actually I don't remember, but I think we only got three guys back in ABT. But um, it was funny because that Saturday practice we had like two walkthroughs and we're trying to get as much much uh, much as we can with the whole team. But um, obviously it worked out for us. Luckily they played a lot of man, so we got to throw the ball a bit. But it was uh, definitely a interesting week. And yeah, I felt like that was our whole season in a nutshell. You know, you couldn't really uh, couldn't really count anything being normal or happening in the right way. Exactly. Um, it, it's not going to feel normal to you next year when you get out there and you don't see Amon Ross, St. Brown, or Tyler Vaughn's at receiver. Uh, obviously, a, a bunch of guys going to the draft, but the two of your top targets. What's it going to be like without those guys, and who do you think benefits the most from that and makes the biggest leap? Yeah, obviously, it's it's tough to see those guys go. Those guys make so many plays for you, and they're, they're so talented, you know. Um, even in practice, I think a few, a few clips of TV got up on Twitter, but it's been a while since uh, or half the catches he made that are like incredible, you know, the fans don't see. So it's going to be sad to see those playmakers go, but the beauty about it is we have so many behind him that we're going to be able to fill it in. Uh, obviously you saw a little bit of Brew last year. I'm really excited for him to kind of get more and more comfortable in that role. He'll probably outside. Um, Kyle Ford should be healthy next year. Obviously someone like Gary Bryan stepping up, Josh, John Jackson stepping up, Josh Jackson um, really impressed us going into last year. Obviously, he didn't have a whole lot of reps going into the season, but 
um, that was someone who we were talking to Graham, like, man, that kid, that kid impressed. Like, we thought he was good going in, but he even impressed us more than we thought. Um, so, again, we got, we're loaded at the receiver room still, and I'm just excited to see all those guys kind of step up. The, the two names that kind of jump out to me are obviously Brew and Gary Bryant. And unfortunately, we didn't get to see a ton of Gary Bryant on offense. We saw him on special teams. What did you see from those two guys in particular in practice through the fall that we didn't get to see so much from the outside? Um, I think I think for Brew, um, and you saw it a little bit, but I think you um, he, he was still kind of getting more and more comfortable. You know, you get those game jitters out of your head a little bit, but he's just so hard to tackle. Um, and I think at times he kind of got caught kind of dancing a little bit, but you'll see next year once he gets fully comfortable. Um, I, I don't, I don't like the. Uh, if I was a defense coordinator, I wouldn't like the idea, the idea of a DB trying to tackle him one on one because he's a horse and he'll just run right through it. So he's a monster, and you know, kind of like Pitt was. I think um, he's just impossible to tackle and guard, and just a mismatch. And you know, Gary's just got that speed and that route running ability that's that's really impressive and. Um, it's a lot of fun. You saw it last year. I mean, he had a few catches last year, but the catches he had, you know, he's running by people. So I'm excited to see see his speed on display, and I think everyone will kind of notice. Definitely. Well, another change for you is that you are now officially the veteran guy uh, on the roster, but also in that quarterback room because you have two freshmen coming in, Miller Moss and Jackson Dart, that are going to be working under you, trying to learn from you, competing to, to be your successor. What's that going to be like for you? to have that uh, I mean it feels like just yesterday you were the the true freshman surprising everybody and now you're going to be two years ahead of those guys and kind of the one they're looking up to yeah no I'm excited I think uh, one of the biggest things last year that was kind of again kind of a crazy year but I was kind of upset about was not being able to kind of get that that time as a leader in the offseason to kind of develop that um, and, and, and develop that chemistry with those guys um, even even uh, outside of quarterback room, but this year hopefully we'll get more of that offseason time together. And I'm really excited to to kind of have some more guys in the room. Obviously, Fink and Mo are great, um, and I think I'm not sure. I think they'll be back, but uh, you know, having having more more depth in that position and having younger guys to kind of help out and uh, be around there will be fun. And um, it was kind of kind of weird last year not having a, a younger guy in the room because it was always me. So I feel like I never really left that role as being the youngest guy. Um, we had a few walk-ons come in, but I'm um, really excited to get them out there. Obviously, I've talked to I've talked to Matt Miller once or twice, but I've talked to Jackson a lot and recruiting him in the last year. Or so I'm excited to have him out here. Oh, were you kind of involved in the in the selling process of getting him on board? <laughs> definitely, definitely. But he's a he's a talented kid, and so is Miller. So I'm uh, excited that he chose chose us, and uh, you know, excited to see him out there on the field with us. Well, two last questions for you, just. Again, reflection on this season as a whole, as an offense, what's the one thing that you'd like to see the offense do differently in 2021? Uh, I think just just be more consistent, get in the rhythm. And, I, you know, again, I don't want to bring up any excuse or anything because we got to play better. But I think the toughest thing last year was, um, and I don't know what to attribute it to because I don't know if it's because of the season we had, what, what was going on. But I just felt like we never, we never established a rhythm or gotten a rhythm, even when we scored a lot of points. Um, it didn't feel like we really, really found our groove. And again, maybe that's only playing six games. I don't know what it is because last year, um, you know, it did take, you know, six, seven games to kind of get there. But again, I think just find that rhythm as soon as we can um, and really just establishing the offseason. So I think you can do that. But we got to find that. And once we hit our groove, I think this offense can be unstoppable. Awesome. Well, the last question you're going to be draft eligible yourself after next season. 
What are your thoughts about entering that third year and knowing that it could be possibly the final year that the NFL scouts will be looking even more closely at you? How do you uh, compartmentalize all that? Yeah, honestly, I haven't thought about it too much. You know, it's uh, all new to me, obviously. But um, again, with everything going on, I'm not sure what the future is going to hold for me or you know, or this team or what even uh, the evaluation process would look like. So, so obviously, uh, don't know what that's going to look like. But um, you know, I kind of figured just do my best and play within the team and do everything I can, and we'll get there and make that decision when it comes. Well, great stuff, Keaton. Great to have you back on the show. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks again for having me. Appreciate it. All right. Much thanks to Keaton Slovis for returning to the Trojan Talk podcast. That was his second appearance this year. I know the first one was well-received, so I was eager to get him back on now that the season is over and he has some downtime. So really appreciate Keaton joining the show. And I'm going to segue from one quarterback to another here. Our QB, Max yeah. Brown, our Trojansports.com analyst. We haven't talked since the end of the season. Got busy in, in the the early signing day rush and everything that happens right after the season ends. But the dust has now settled, mostly, we think, on USC's football offseason. They've hired their coaches. They've fired coaches. Players have left. We kind of have a clear picture of what is happening or what has happened, and we're going to break it all down. Max, how's it going? It's going great. Yeah, no, pumped to, uh, pumped to be back here, I think. Taking a month off, like you said, kind of allows the, the dust to settle and – Feels like, as every offseason is, there's a couple coaching changes, a couple staff changes, and then we're filming this podcast the day after the Larry Scott news, which I think will be well-received right. for any USC fans. So, overall, a lot of movement and uh, a lot to talk on, for sure. Yep, we'll talk uh, Clay McGuire, new line coach. We'll talk Robert Steiner, the new strength and conditioning coach. We will talk Larry Scott. We'll talk about Marshall Charrington, new addition to the recruiting department's but let's start with the, I'm going to call it news of the week because that's the one I've been waiting on for, for three weeks, is the offensive line hire. USC moves on from Tim Drevno after the season. I wouldn't say it was a surprise because obviously the offensive line struggled. The run game hit an absolute nadir, finishing 120th in the FBS and rushing at 97 yards a game. That is very un-USC-like. So you can't say the surprise that changes were made. Uh, although I didn't think it was a guarantee they were going to do that. So they fired Tim Drevno on January 1st. It takes about three weeks to get a replacement, and they hire Clay McGuire from Texas State, which is what fans want to fix on. Oh, my gosh, USC is hiring from Texas State now. It was North Texas before. Now it's Texas State. Well, Clay McGuire spent 10 years on Mike Leach's staffs at Texas Tech, his alma mater, and that Washington State. He also worked under Cliff Kingsbury at Texas Tech and under Lincoln Riley at East Carolina when Lincoln Riley was the offensive coordinator there. So a decent pedigree. I'll get more into that. But just when you saw that hire, what did you think about USC plucking Clay McGuire to fill their O-line void? Yeah, I kind of went at it in a couple ways. I think what I liked is the the obvious mesh there with Graham Harrell's past and obviously their time at Washington State and and Clay kind of growing up in the same, Clay McGuire that is, uh, growing up in the same kind of tree that Graham is because me kind of connecting the dots behind the scenes, I could imagine a scenario where Tim Drevno is a great guy and anyone that's listened to an interview from him, I think uh, he's always upbeat and whatnot. 
But he also, his career took off with Jim Harbaugh, if I'm not uh, not mistaken. And obviously that's more of right. a uh, pro-style approach to things. And so I could see last season just with how the run game played out and how the offensive line played out, behind the scenes there could have very well been a scenario where Graham was trying to push one way with things and Drevno was potentially trying to push another way with things. And not malicious or anything, but but subtle. And And I think even if you are the best coach in the world – having things pull in different directions at times, and I'm just speculating here, that's not good for anyone. And so I think what I like with the McGuire hire is that you are for sure getting a guy that's going to move in the same direction with Graham. And I know a lot of fans are going to hear that and say, ah, well, we need to get back to pro style. We need to get back and we, we need to have the balance with Graham. I disagree with that. I think if USC's offense under Graham is going to find success, everything needs to be pushing it in one direction. I think what was concerning to me is is not the Texas State nature, um, because I think there is something to be said, and that's kind of why I like the strength and conditioning hire of uh, of Steiner. I know he's coming from Notre Dame, but getting an up and coming guy, getting a guy that maybe hasn't seen the ropes and been at other schools and, and failed. Yes, there's some good to that, but there's also some bad in that. In that they maybe not be might not be like the next big guy kind of thing. So I don't necessarily mind the Texas State aspect. What, I, what's, what is very concerning to me is when you go look back at the Washington State numbers from 2012 to 2017, and I believe it's the bulk of McGuire's time there, the sacks given up numbers, just how they rank nationally, are not pretty. And yes, those offenses were very explosive. Yes, those offenses were true air raid, dropping back 50 times a game. And so naturally, there's going to be more sacks. I totally understand that. But those numbers are concerning because the second he left that program, if I'm not mistaken, those sack numbers in terms of sacks given up uh, improve dramatically. And people that are well-versed will say, oh, well, they had a first-rounder at left tackle and Andre Dillard, who's the Eagles' left tackle right now, and they had some other pieces and, and whatnot. Sure, there is something to be said about that, but I think that number is concerning to me when you talk about a guy coming in trying to do – more with less, I guess you could say, uh, in, in a certain respect. Right. Um, that, that, to me, uh, like I said, is concerning. So I like one aspect, but I think the other aspect is certainly a, uh, a wait and see and a fair call out for McGuire as he comes to USC. Yeah, no, that's very fair. What jumped out to me is that if you look back through his resume, he has been at times an offensive line coach, at times a running backs coach. And obviously this move was made – because the O-line has struggled, because, uh, like you mentioned, different philosophies, maybe from Tim Drevno, what he's used to and what Graham wants, but also because the run game just uh, ground to a halt last year. And Tim Drevno, in addition to being the O-line coach, was the, quote, run game coordinator and was involved in the planning of that. And you just have to imagine that that there were probably different philosophies uh, in that regard, too. So... I think it was pretty clear what they were looking for, and maybe I'm wrong here. I I don't know how many experienced offensive line coaches from the air raid tree there are out there, and how many, yeah, and how many of those are even available. So, if USC was being very specific in what it thought it needed and what it wanted, then I don't know how many candidates were really you know checked all those boxes. So that's why. You mentioned connecting the dots earlier. I connected the dots, and I assume that Graham Harrell probably had a very large role in this whole turnover of that spot. I'm sure after the season, 
as they did their their self-analysis and how do we fix things. I, I would assume he was very frank and opinionated on why the run game struggled and what he needed to fix it. And they're all in on Graham Harrell. Obviously, they gave him a big extension after last season, after 2019. Uh, so if you're all in on your offensive coordinator, you you got to be all in, and you got to give him what he needs to be successful or what he feels he needs. So I imagine that he was a very involved factor in all this and probably not only said we need to do something different, but, but this is kind of what we need, and they went and found it. And that, that's why it makes sense to me. I think your criticism is, is definitely fair, though. Yeah. Here's where, here's where I need your insight, though, Max, and, I, and our listeners need your insight. Because I, I am not an X's nose guru in general, but especially when it comes to line play, I really just <laughs> don't have don't have uh, many deep thoughts to offer on the on the nitty gritty of the of the big guys up front. Uh, what do you think would be different in the way USC's offensive line operates with Clay McGuire first? What Tim Drevno did coming from the Jim Harbaugh tree, as you mentioned. Yeah, in terms of schematically, I think your your question's perfect because. Keep in mind that the, the pro-style aspect of offense has a lot more going on from the offensive line front. You have guards pulling, centers pulling, tackles pulling. You have tight ends coming down. You have pin and pull schemes. And if I'm talking a different language, that's kind of the point because there's a lot more you can do in the run game there versus the air raid philosophy is a lot more just pure zone schemes. It's very basic relative to that other, other side of things. And so in terms of what you will see different, I don't think visually it's going to be that much different. If anything, uh, I thought USC's offense may have pulled guards, uh, a la like Liam Jimmins, a little bit more than a traditional air raid scheme. But as we've talked about, this isn't necessarily the Mike Leach air raid scheme we're, uh, we're used to seeing. So I think visually the USC fan, not a lot's going to be different. Maybe they simplify it more, but that's kind of the point with this scheme is you're not going to hire an offensive line coach, or I guess – the level of weight on an offensive line coach in this offense, I would say, is dramatically less than, say, a Wisconsin, for obvious reasons in terms of scheme. But this hire, it's, it could very well, like, I mean, this might be a bold statement, but very well kind of show the fate of Clay Helton's job when it's all said and done. Because for this team to take the next step, the offensive line has to take the next step. I think that is the number one position group that we need to see a level up in terms of play. And it's going to be hard to do with a guy like AVT leaving and some of these young guys need to step up. But that's going to be on McGuire to, hey, you need to develop some of these guys. And if you look at some articles, he was pra- McGuire was praised at times with, hey, doing more with less in terms of Wazoo's recruiting and whatnot. Well, USC's recruited solid, maybe not to the level that they have in past, but they have dudes in there that are better than Washington State's players in terms of recruits. Can McGuire develop and elevate those guys? Because the offensive line is going to have got, need, need guys to, 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 to show up this year. The, the last offseason, it was a lot of familiar faces that were coming back, luckily with AVT returning. This year, potentially a little bit different story with some of those guys uh, needing to step up, especially in terms of depth and whatnot. Yeah, a few things I want to get more specific on there. You mentioned at the start his familiarity with Graham. And just for those that, that don't know the full background, I should probably go over that real fast. So McGuire played at Texas Tech from 2000 to 2004, which is before uh, Harold got there. 
But then he came back and, and started his coaching career there, as, first as a video intern, then a, a grad assistant, then special teams coordinator, then running backs coach. So he was he was there in the in the building, in the program, on the staff, while Graham was at Texas Tech. Uh, and then, of course, Graham got his start coaching at Washington State, where he was a, a, an analyst and then an uh, outside receivers coach for those two seasons. And that overlapped with McGuire's tenure there. So he definitely knows who he's bringing in, which is always you can look at it two ways. You can look at it as as taking the convenient route by picking someone you know. It's just easier than than doing a search and everything else. Um, I'm not saying they didn't search. I'm just saying uh, that's one perception people people could have about Graham's connection to him. I like the fact that you know what you're getting. So if Graham Harrell thinks that Clay McGuire is an upgrade and Graham Harrell knows Clay McGuire and has coached with him, then that endorsement rings significant with me in a way. Uh, but that was not the biggest factor in why USC hired Clay McGuire. I've asked around, I've gotten some more perspective. What stood out to USC was when I mentioned at the top who he's worked for. Mike Leach, Cliff Kingsbury, Lincoln Riley. Maybe three of the most, maybe maybe the three most accomplished offensive coaches of the last two decades. Definitely on the short list of that conversation. And those aren't all the same system, and they're not the same system as what USC runs. But there's a lot of overlap and similarity in what they want to do. And those were all very, very, very successful offenses that he was a part of in this capacity or in some capacity. Like I said, he was the running backs coach under uh, Lincoln Riley and when he started out at uh, Tech and then the offensive line coach under Leach at Washington State. But he's been in these offenses. He he knows what works, how how to get things working. So I think everyone who listens to this podcast or is a subscriber to our site knows that I'm just naturally an optimist, just how I'm wired. So when I look at the hire, those are the things that, that I fixate on and I see of why, hmm, this, maybe this, this could work. Maybe this could make a positive difference. I like it. That's why we keep you around, Ryan. Love that optimism. <laughs> <laughs> I can't shake it. It's just, it's just me. It's not forced. You know, it just... Love it. it, it uh... <laughs> but yeah, and so going back to the, the initial reaction we got when the news came out and we, we wrote about it and the discussion started and everyone was I, I, probably underwhelmed and the Texas State thing got thrown up a lot. My response was, would you feel better if he had been hired two years ago from Texas Tech or six years ago from Washington State? And it's funny It's uh, funny for me hearing that because we did a podcast after Todd Orlando got hired, and it's, well, why are we getting someone that was fired from Texas kind of thing? And I know he was fired <laughs> and we're not poaching guys, but let's be real, USC fans. I don't know if we're in a position to poach assistance from established programs everyone knows that clay helton's has one of the hottest seats in college football if you're put yourself in a coach's position would you leave an established program whatever that is maybe not ohio state but an established program to then come join usc in a coaching staff that very well this time next year could be completely blown up so i don't mind the texas state nature of it at all and it's just kind of funny for me hearing that of Okay, well, do you want a tried and true veteran guy who's been been been, been through the ropes? Well, no. Okay, I, I got that. Do you want a Texas State guy? Okay, no. Well, then you can't go poach a guy from Georgia. That's not happening under the current state of USC. So it's kind of uh, 
I don't know, not pick your poison, but uh, it feels like a, uh, a lost battle at all cause there for SC fans complaining about the Texas State nature. Yeah, and, and just to kind of give the background there, you know, he's with Leach at Washington State, and he leaves before Leach left. He leaves to go back to Texas Tech. So he, he leaves on his own to go to Texas Tech for a better job. He got the, the title of co-offensive coordinator. Clearly, Cliff Kingsbury wanted him there. It was He went and kind of poached him from Leach's staff. And then, of course, uh, that lasted for a year, and Kingsbury got fired. And then somehow managed to be an NFL head coach months later. <laughs> but it's a different story. Uh, so that was his career arc where he's at his alma mater. He, he goes and grooms under Lincoln Riley in East Carolina. He goes to Washington State. Um, and he gets plucked back to Texas Tech. And things the staff just gets blown up. So what's he do? He gets a job in-state. Uh, again, I, I don't know how many schools are looking to hire people with the specific experience he has and the systems he has. Maybe it was hard to find an obvious fit. Um, I don't dwell on the Texas State thing. Now, I'm certainly willing to be cautiously optimistic, and you make great points about the sack stats at Washington State, and I'm not going to come on here and tell you, man, this is they knocked this one out of the park. This is a no-doubter. He's going to fix all the problems. I have no confident opinion on whether or not this is going to work or make a difference next year. I don't. I'm not trying to sell one. I All I can say is that I can see what they saw and why they made the hire, and I can see enough to be cautiously optimistic. Love it. I'm with you. Let's dovetail into one other topic here. This became a, a major talking point on the board this week on Trojan Talk at Trojansports.com. The, the notion of um, scapegoats. And a lot's been made about Clay. I think the numbers, 14 assistants have been let go in this time. Certainly the last three years have involved a lot of upheaval after 2018. When everyone thought he was gone that year, he comes back and they clean out most of the offensive staff and a couple other pieces on defense. After 2019, they clean out the entire defensive staff, including a few of those guys they just hired a year earlier. And after 2020, they obviously get rid of Tim Drevno and Aaron Osmus, the strength and conditioning coach. And everyone's saying, oh, how many more scapegoats does he get? To me, the term scapegoat doesn't apply to the situation because I don't think that Clay Helton at this point in his career at USC has any leverage. So I don't think it's a situation where he goes, you know what, the problem's actually the O-line coach and let me, let me fix that and we'll get this thing going. I don't think it worked that way. I think the decision was made to keep Clay and then a separate decision was made to uh, improve the team somehow. And you can dwell on the first decision all you want, and we'll never truly know what the evaluation or analysis has been on Clay Helton. Was it that they just simply, like they saw this year, and wanted to keep it? Was it that they wanted to make a move and couldn't? Or was it some middle ground where they like the infrastructure they put in place on both sides? They've, they want to see what Graham Harrell can do if they fix the O-line situation. And they want to see what Tyrell Lando can do with a full season with his staff. And they look at the recruiting being a top 10 class and signing a top national recruit in Corey Foreman and having real momentum and a total turnaround from last year and already some strong 2022 vibes going. Maybe they liked all that and didn't want to blow up the infrastructure. Either way, changing the offensive line coach out 
to me is not a scapegoat. They're not trying to convince USC fans to feel differently about Clay Helton by changing the O-line coach. I think it's as simple as we made a decision to keep Clay Helton and this staff in place. With that being said, where can we get better? The O-line coach is an area for upgrade. Let's do that. So Yeah. I don't know if you feel differently about that. I understand the overall the overall sentiment is that, man, the pieces keep changing, the one constant remains Helton, and a lot of the problems remain the same. I don't dispute any of that. I get all that. That's all fair. I just, this notion of Tim Drebno being a scapegoat doesn't fit the definition of the word to me because I don't think that Clay Helton had any power to say oh it wasn't me it wasn't me it's the, it's the O-line coach get rid of him and we're good that's not yeah. how this works and I don't think Tim Drevno I'm in agreement with you and I don't think Tim Drevno had the responsibility on him uh to even warrant a scapegoat I mean I think that's that's why so often when you have the scapegoat connotation or whatever it's with like coordinators it's with John Baxter right. it's with guys that right. it's with the, the team yes. Martin that's where the the scapegoat comes in and so I'm in agreement with you, but I also agree with the USC fan that does have that sentiment that, man, how many uh, how many times is he going to be able to kind of hit the reset button or whatever, true, um, and kind of and kind of get it over again? And I think, and and Mike Bone sat down with the LA Times as well, and I we said this back in 2018, and I'll say it again this year or 2019. Um, I think this is the year for Clay, where it either happens and he takes a huge leap, or it doesn't, and this is this is kind of it. But I also think it's important to mentioned that you go and hire Graham Harrell, yet you keep Tim Drevno on the on on the staff or a guy that was in or had ties to the older staff. And when I played at USC, Drevno was my offensive line coach. He's well liked, he's well respected, but like we talked about, comes from a different aspect. And so as Graham gets more immersed into this into this program and he's no longer the new guy. He's no longer the guy finding his, his way. But now he's the guy that the program has invested in and gone out of their way to invest in him. Well, now it's probably time that he starts calling his own shots. And he says, you're right, Tim Drevno, I like you. I understand you have a good relationship with Clay and people like being around you. But I got to get a guy in here um, that knows my system. And I can't be button heads with you in a Monday morning install of, hey, I want to install this play or I should have called this run play. I don't need any of that. And so to me, it's not a scapegoat, like you said. It's more of just a tinkering and trying to upgrade um, the foundation you've already built, not totally revamp and start a new foundation like we were talking last year uh, or last season with like Todd Orlando this time. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, you look at last year, they get really clean, see their gas, they hired Todd Orlando, and they let him totally make over the, the whole defensive staff. Everyone's everyone's replaced. Uh, juxtapose that to a year earlier, Graham Harrell comes in. He gets to bring one guy, really. Yeah. Well, actually, not even initially, because Mike Jinks was hired with Cliff Kingsbury. So Cliff got to bring one guy, and everyone else was the same. Then Graham brought John David Baker and Seth Dakey as analysts initially, and then uh, Baker was promoted to tight ends coach uh, after last season. So... We're going to get more into this later on in this conversation because we want to have a few more points that, that tie into this. But I think it reflects a difference of operating proficiency from the athletics administration. Whereas I I will totally use the scapegoating term with what happened after the 2018 season. That was a situation where any coach in the country 
would have lost his job, except that Clay just had this huge extension he had just signed, and Lynn Swan and whoever else was involved weren't going to own their mistake right away. And therefore, yes, there were scapegoats. There, there were, we're getting rid of this guy, this guy, this guy. This will show the fans that we're making changes, this, this, this. But there wasn't a great plan overall there. I do think that the Kingsbury hire, which became the Graham hire, was inspired. I know that fans are starting to sour on the whole air raid concept, and that's a conversation for a, a different day. But other than that, the rest of those hires, those weren't guys that they specifically targeted and said, we've got to go get Chad Kauha and Greg Burns. Um, and no offense to those guys, I like them both. Uh, enjoyed talking with them that whole year. But those were not guys they they specifically targeted and, and went and got at all costs. Whereas a year later, Dante Williams was a guy that they got. They wanted Dante Williams, they got him. They wanted Sean Snyder, they got him. They wanted Vic Sooto over at UVA, who's on the rise at UVA and working under his mentor, Bronco Mendenhall, had no obvious reason to leave. They wanted him, they went and got him. Difference in philosophies, and then they give Tyrolando Orlando carte blanche to pick your staff, and Graham didn't have that. And so I guess he's now kind of getting some more pieces in place that can help bolster what he wants to do. And if we're being honest, that probably should have happened right away. If you're going to bring in a new coordinator, that's probably the only way it works is if you give him full latitude. Who do you want on your staff? And he didn't have that. Now he's gotten it. I'd be interested to know how it got to that point, if it was just an easy, natural conversation, or if he just got uh, to the – the peak of frustration and said, you got to help me out here. Okay. I, I can't do my system if I don't have guys that know it and it's not working out. We don't know. We don't know. Uh, I will say that Graham's a very honest guy. He'll tell you what he thinks. And going back to what I said earlier, I think that there was probably a frank conversation that happened that led to this. And here we are. No, I think it's a testament to the growth that Graham's had uh, over the past couple of years. When he came on, he wasn't the big, splashy name like Cliff Kingsbury was and kind of had to earn his way, I guess, a little bit. And even though it hasn't been perfect, especially from a USC fan's uh, perspective, he's done enough and is a hot enough name in terms of a rising potential head coach that he's got enough traction within the program to say, all right, Clay. Let's uh, let's make this change. And we're only speculating. It could have been a mutual agreement. I like your point about, hey, it could have been a very easy, natural conversation, writing on the wall type thing. But at the end of the day, I think offensive line is the most important position or uh, most important position moving forward for SC in terms of growth. But I think the coach itself is not going to install a groundbreaking new difference. It's still going to be the Graham Harrell show. It's still going to be Keaton Slovis's right arm first. And uh, the pieces are going to fall in place after that. And just to, to tie a bow on this with the point you made, I, this is probably – this surely has to be the last piece that can be changed out on this uh, on this car before it's taken into the shop. Uh, I'm talking about Clay Helton here. Uh, I, you know, we, we can have the semantics debate about scapegoat or not a scapegoat like we had and like I've had on the board with our, our great subscribers. But I do think that – I do agree they can't make any more changes without it being the head coach. So I think Clay's all in. This has to work. 
all the chips are in the middle of the table. Uh, I have said and maintained all along. I do fully, fully believe that there will be a full evaluation on him this year. His contract runs through the 2023 season, so there's still a ways to go. But just from what from what I know about how competitive and how much Mike Bone and Brandon Sosna want to get this program back to where it should be as soon as possible, I really think that if it's not looking like it's going that way this season, that there will be a change. I believe that. I know everyone's rolling their eyes right now because they said, well, we thought that in 2018. We thought that in 2019. We thought that in 2020. I get it. Um, I think the contract's been a massive, just massive obstacle. And again, I, I think that they do really like the infrastructure they have in place. And that extends to the recruiting department. And you don't know if a new coach comes in, if, if he goes, no, i got to bring in my guys and the recruiting staff. And so they're, I think they like what they have there. They like what they saw from the defense. And I think they still believe in Graham Harrell. And so this is the year. This is the year for it to either work or not work. And if they have a 7-5 and five season next year, I don't see any way that it is run back. So I truly believe that this is going to be the year. Now, what's the gray area is the question. Is the gray area 9-3? Does that, does that mean he stays, he goes? What happens there? I don't know. But I, I think that there is there are two possible outcomes for Clay Helton after next season, whereas maybe that hasn't so much been the case the last few years. I completely agree. I completely agree. All right, well, let's let's segue. We have more topics to hit. Is that maybe the most in-depth Clay McGuire podcast discussion that's ever happened? Exactly. You week? should you should have that be its own uh, <laughs> own podcast for any McGuire, uh, McGuire fans out there. No, that was good, and I think it's important to kind of break down the nuances for sure. Okay, well, the other move this offseason was maybe the more surprising move when USC chose not to renew the contract of strength and conditioning coach Aaron Osmus. And I, to this day, I still don't know exactly what the major impetus was there. Again, you know, I, I'm I'm guilty to this, but there was a lot of hype when Aaron Osmus came in, and that tends to always happen with a new strength coach. Everyone's like, "Oh my gosh, it's so different, it's so much tougher." But it's hard not to. It's hard not to buy into the comments when they're coming from the players, when they're tweeting out, oh, my gosh, this is night and day, um, and, and you're seeing some physical gains that they're posting online with before and after pictures. Uh, so I had every reason to believe that Aaron Ausmus was making a nice impact. I guess if you're not in there every day, you don't really know, and I just don't know what the main reason was there for the change. They go and hire Robert Steiner, who was in an assistant role at Notre Dame for the last few years. And uh, Notre Dame's strength and conditioning program has gotten a ton of credit for the what's what's the word for the rejuvenation of Brian Kelly's program after it bottomed out uh, several years ago. They bring in Matt Bayless, and I mean even even. This year, last year, they're still talking about the impact that he's, he's had on getting that program back to the college football playoffs and, and just how much the uh, turnaround started with the strength and conditioning program and building toughness up front. And 
Robert Steiner was on that staff. And this is the thing that you never know. You never know when you hire someone who worked for someone that was the difference maker, how much impact the other someone had and how much they can transfer that from where they were to where they're going. And that's the best example is uh, a decade plus worth of hires off of Bill Belichick's staff in the NFL. And many of those have not worked out, but everyone wants a piece of the Belichick operation. Oh, well, well, this guy, this guy worked under Bill Belichick. He's, he knows how to do it now. And that's how you get Matt Patricia with the Detroit Lions and uh, some other guys who have who have left and not succeeded. But it doesn't mean that uh, I don't believe that Robert Steiner can have a great impact. I mean, I think that that's a pretty good apprenticeship uh, working at Notre Dame's program under Matt Bayless, who was among the most respected guys in that field. And certainly you're in it every day. You see how he structures it, how he sets it up, how he executes it, and... Obviously, he can't do it on his own. He does it with the staff. So Robert Steiner was a part of that. It's incumbent on the people who hire him to vet how much a part of that he was and how much he can transfer it over. So you have to kind of give some benefit of the doubt to Mike Bone and company that they got to a point of comfort where they believed this guy was an impact there. He was part of that process, and he can now do it here. We'll see. What I'm not going to do, I promise the board, I'm not going to overhype this hire because I was I was driving the Aaron Osmus train for a bit. And uh, it, it went off the tracks, apparently, without me knowing. I was asleep in the dining uh-huh. car, and, and it went right off the cliff one day. Uh, so I'm not going to drive the hype train on Robert Steiner. Again, like with Clay McGuire, I can see exactly why they targeted him, why they hired him. I heard that there were some, some sitting uh, head strength and conditioning coaches at Power 5 conferences that were interested in the job and that were candidates but they thought that Robert Steiner was the best guy. So it wasn't a case of they couldn't land anyone who was in a full-time role. They had to hire an assistant from somewhere. Uh, everything I've heard is that they really liked Robert Steiner. He kind of captured their interest and rose to the top and is the guy. Max, thoughts on on the whole on the whole thing, on Aaron Osmus getting, uh, getting shoved out and, and yeah. Robert Steiner coming in? Yeah, I think with the Aaron Osmus aspect, I was always hesitant on the um, hype, I guess you could call it, behind him for a couple reasons. First off, he was my strength coach my first year at USC. And so it's not like this was he was totally new to the school. It wasn't like he was a totally uh, new, fresh breath of air to people that had been a part of the program for a little while. And, and I'll start by saying... Uh, Double A's great guy. I remember I ran into him uh, in 2018. He actually was working in the business sector of, of things like selling equipment and whatnot. And, and and I ran into him at a gym. So good guy. But I, the but what happened if we if we circle back to to 2019? If you recall, uh, he was late to the party in terms of getting a strength coach. And I remember that was very concerning to me at the time because. Uh, it put the program behind the eight ball. And I remember thinking like, what? They only had like, uh, I think it was a few weeks of strength and conditioning, if that, before spring ball. And to me as a former player, like that was crazy. The fact that you wouldn't have winter conditioning, you wouldn't have just a traditional setup. Like that that to me was concerning at the time. And then it felt like when they were doing the meat and potatoes hype and they were hyping up how great the weight room was, that that was kind of overcompensating for some of the negative or hesitant vibe around the hire originally. Because if we're being honest, the hire of double A, 
that to me was a very comfort hire. I mean, he was local. He wasn't working at a different school. He was working in like the the, the business yeah. side of things. And so it was a very e- – he had worked with Clay Helton in the past. He had been at USC in the past. It was a very easy hire. And that's to take nothing away from AA. He's a professional. He's well-versed. But it was, it was, it was certainly easy. And so when, it, when people kind of overcompensated and said, oh, this is the best thing ever, that to me always was kind of like, yeah, I'm not so sure. But here's what I'll say. In terms of the, the, the Robert Steiner hire, I think the average college football fan doesn't truly know how important the strength and conditioning coach is. I think it's safe for me to say I spent probably 4x the amount of time with Ivan Lewis, my strength coach during the mo- most of my USC time, than I did with Clay Helton, who was my offensive coordinator. Just how the rules of NCA are sorted out. You are with your strength and conditioning coach much more. And as a result, for me, I'm about to be 26. I have relationships with, with pretty much all my strength and conditioning coaches to this day for that very reason. And so this, the, the standard and the expectation and the, and, the, and the line of communication that Robert Steiner can, can, can establish with this team is absolutely paramount. And when you talk about changing cultures and changing kind of narratives and whatnot, I think it's not over um, overstating things by saying, hey, it starts in the weight room because that is where, especially when you talk about offensive and defensive line, which I know is where USC fans are kind of focused on in terms of growth, that is a direct result to kind of barbell and dumbbell and, and getting younger guys to develop and whatnot. So certainly think uh, that's important. I think one thing in terms of Steiner specifically that, that sticks out to me is similar to what I was talking about in terms of the the Maguire, Todd Orlando conversation, in terms of up and coming or or lack thereof, but it definitely seems like Steiner is an up and coming guy, which excites me because if you hit, you hit big. And it's not necessarily, I mentioned a safe hire with double A. I wouldn't necessarily call this a safe hire. Yes, he's coming from Notre Dame. He has some background, but this is certainly a step up for Steiner. He's for sure saying, hey man, this is this is, a, this is a huge level of responsibility for me. And if you hit and he's the next big time strength and conditioning guy, I think it's, uh, I mean, I think that has a lot, of, uh, a lot of potential there. Obviously, Notre Dame being consistently one of the most physical teams in college football, I think is a great sign that he's cut from that cloth a little bit. Um, and so exciting there. And I think it's important. I mentioned Ivan Lewis's name early. It's kind of crazy to think about the two-year journey we've been on with the Clay Helton and the kind of the USC coaching carousel. I would say Ivan Lewis's move to the Seahawks this time in January of 19, I believe it was 19, January, it might have even been February, that was a proactive move by Ivan Lewis to get out of USC before things came crashing down. That's, I don't sure. know that to be true, but me reading between the lines, that's how I took that move because I know Ivan Lewis. Uh, yes, he went to the NFL, but he's also a guy that enjoyed living in Southern California and was a guy that's a, a thought leader in the strength training world. Even if you didn't like kind of how physical the program was or whatever, Ivan Lewis is one of the most respected guys in the industry. And so I took that as a proactive move for him to get to the NFL, get out before the house burns down. And we're fast forwarding two years later and the house is still standing. It might not be in great shape, but it's still standing. So just kind of a unique full circle moment that we've gone through a whole nother uh, or two full strength and conditioning cycles and programs now on a third. And we still have the same head coach, which is just an interesting little tidbit for sure. Well, let me ask you this. When 
the initial news came down that Aaron Osmus was not going to be brought back. What was your first thought as to why? Did you have a, a, a guess or a assumption as to why that change was happening? Yeah, I think when I first saw it, it didn't surprise me. It wasn't like, oh, wow, oh, dang. Like, it genuinely didn't. And I think it goes back to my point is I was able to kind of sort through the hype. And I was like, yeah, this might, this might be a little, little sure. overstating things a little bit. But the why, I think it dates back to what I was kind of saying about, hey, he was a comfort hire um, yeah. a, cu- a couple years ago. And then it kind of runs its course. And if you're Clay Helton saying, you know what? I can go out and get someone else. Or you're Clay Helton and you say, you know what? To the segment we just talked about, this is my last shot to get things right. And Clay Helton knows the importance of strength and conditioning. If he's saying, you know what? Double A's message, he might be a great guy. He might be uh, very well versed in his, uh, in his tactics. But his message might be falling on deaf ears a little bit now. And, and Clay Helton wants to, wants to take that next step. Let's go get a younger, um, fresh perspective, Notre Dame roots, and try to spark one last time in this season to, to kind of get over the hump. That, to me, is probably the why behind it. And uh, it, it's probably just an element of, I mean, AA kind of probably ran its course, and maybe they're not seeing the, the true development um, that they had hoped for, even with all the hype and all the meat and potato stuff. Maybe they still feel like there's uh, there's one a- uh, extra piece they're missing. Oh, and the last point I want to mention that I that that did catch my eye is when they announced Steiner's um, hiring. His title was director of football sports performance. I have yes. never seen that before. It was not head strength and conditioning coach, which I would right. say ninety percent of the schools, ninety five percent of the schools in the country have, and so. It's in some token, it's probably USC trying to be innovative and cutting edge and, and all that with a fancy director of football sports performance. But maybe, and, and I think there's definitely something to be said about that. About that. But maybe there's also something to be said about um, them wanting to approach strength and conditioning in a more innovative way, in less let's squat, deadlift, bench, let's get big, let's eat meat and potatoes kind of traditional way, and let's move towards more of a 2021 innovative new school mentality a little bit sports science a little bit maybe yeah um well no it's a great point and i wanted to get there i had forgotten about it so i'm glad you brought it up it's so i, I think it comes from Notre dame because matt, matt bayless is titled as director of football performance and what that tells me is that they were wowed by the interview with robert steiner and wowed by learning about how different Notre Dame's operation might have been than what USC was doing, and those are great points. Yeah. So, so Robert Steiner probably told him, "Well, this is how we have it structured, and and this is our philosophy, and it's not just strength training; it's 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 football sports performance, and and so they probably uh, bought into not only the the whole philosophy and, and structure of the department, but said, "Well, yeah, that's what we should call it then, and that's probably what it reflects." On the topic of things that we don't know but we think. I'm going to stick to my opinion that this is probably not a Clay Helton move. I, I really think this, this has Mike Bone and Brandon Sauston's fingerprints all over it. And I say that not knowing for sure. I don't know. And I, I definitely think that Clay Helton was involved. He's been involved in, in, in all these hires the last couple of years. You would not, not involve him. But was he the instigator? Was he the guy that said, you know what? Aaron Osmus has got to go. We got to, we got to think differently in the, in the weight room. What, 
what would make us think that Clay, who was stubbornly loyal to everyone, to John Baxter for years, was stubbornly loyal to Neil Calloway, Johnny Nansen for, for many, 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 many years, um, and all of the moves previously, everyone assumed that Lynn Swan forced him to make the changes after 18, and we gave a lot of credit to Mike Bone and company for spearheading the Tyler Lando hire and initially coming close with Dave Aranda for that position. So did we really think that all of a sudden Clay is finishing the season and going, all right, double A, he's got to go. Drevno, he's got to go. I don't think so personally. I think these are coming from above. And that if that is the case, that's ultimately a good thing because you want to be building infrastructure for your program that maybe has a shelf life beyond your embattled head coach. And I think it's possible that if a move was made after next season on clay, and again, it's also possible that everything works and they go 10 and two or 11 and one. And we're no longer talking about clay on the hot seat. So I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to make this sound like it's inevitable that we're going to be uh, talking about Clay's ouster next year. It's not. But if that happens, um, I think they're, they're going to try and keep Dante Williams. I think they would try and keep Vic Soto, probably Sean Snyder. And maybe Robert Steiner is not, is not brought in as a, as a one-year patch, but maybe they think he's the guy, no matter who they bring, they hire, they're going to fight for Robert Steiner to, to be leading the strength and conditioning program. So I think this is probably largely made above Clay's head, but that's just my opinion. Yeah, it definitely feels like overall the Mike Bone approach is to try to elevate and innovate and kind of spark up some, some the, the various aspects of the athletic program just in general, that overall mindset. And I don't think those words that I just outlined apply to Aaron Osmus. And, and that's not even a knock on him. He is very rooted in kind of traditional ways of doing things. He's very, I mean, he was here during the Pete Carroll USC um, era in terms of, hey, we're, we're working out in a weight room that's not that very big, that's not very big, that doesn't have fancy equipment and all that. But it feels like Mike Bone's kind of moving away from that a little bit of, hey, we are USC. Hey, we do need to be kind of setting the standard. We do need to be cutting edge. Let's bring in a younger guy that's got some new ways of approaching things and all that just to try to add a little spark there. I think there's definitely kind of a mindset uh, shift there a little bit. But I will say, sure, the athletic department in terms of Mike Bone and his people, I'm sure, to your point, had, had a big, uh, big factor in this. But at the end of the day, I still feel like this is a I, – I guess I, I would disagree a little bit in that – uh, I still feel like this is a Clay Helton-led decision because I can't see, and maybe Mike Bone's different, but at least in my time, the weight room is kind of a sacred place. And people that kind of that kind of have been in there know what I'm talking about. And I don't know if I – I saw Lynn Swan probably step in the weight room very few times. And like I said, Mike Bone's a different animal, but I can't see – Mike Bone evaluating like player movement and 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 kind of different innovative ways to squat or do lunges and and, and kind of that in that <laughs> that's, way and that's so fair. that's, that's fair. where I'm hesitant a little bit but I do agree with you that at the end of the year when Mike Bone and, and Clay Helton sit down before Christmas and they're like all right where can we elevate the program all right boom they look at offensive line and then maybe they look at 
Aaron Osmus and where he's at. And also, just kind of talking out loud here, I don't know what Aaron Osmus's contract was financially, but I, inv- I imagine it was quite modest just because they didn't have to go poach him from anywhere. And so with that, if you're Mike Bone really trying to invest resources and level things up, maybe you're looking at that element on the balance sheet and saying, hey, that's somewhere we can elevate. Do we really need to pay or give X amount of resources to Aaron Osmus, or can we get a more new, exciting young guy in a guy like Steiner? And so all just thought process out there. At the end of the day, once again, Aaron Osmus is a good coach. I enjoyed my time working for him, but I think there is something to be said in kind of this newer approach for USC. Does a younger, uh, flashier Steiner kind of align with that vision more? Okay, yeah, I, I, I can buy that maybe the impetus for change may have come from Clay. I'm not sure I totally believe that, but I can, I can buy that. But I think the hire definitely uh, came from above. And, and again, just to, to bring it all full circle on that matter, just, again, com- compare the hires before Bone and Sosna got here with the hires since. And we'll start with Osmus. Like you said, comfortable, convenient, local hire, not even in the, in the college business at the time. Chad Kay uh, on the defensive line from Boise State, now coaching at UNLV. Uh, Greg Burns, again, in the conference, had been at USC before, not a hot commodity, now coaching at Arizona. They elevated Joe DeForest from an analyst role uh, for outside linebackers coach, a guy that Clay had, had known going back to his days as a GA at Duke. Uh, convenient hires or low-impact hires where they weren't prying coveted guys away. That's where we were before. Everything aside from the splash hire of Kingsbury, which then became Graham Harrell, everything aside from that fit the mold of very low-buzz hires yeah. and and fed into the narrative of fans. And I, hate, I hated this term, but I understood it where they just said, well, well, Clay Helton's Rolodex, Clay Helton's Rolodex. The hires that were, were being made kind of fed into that narrative. Now, since they tried to to pluck away the defensive coordinator from the reigning national champions, LSU, who was the highest-paid assistant coach in the country, Dave Veranda, and almost had him. He gets the head job at, at uh, Baylor. They then hire Tyler Orlando, who's a, a – one of the most experienced coordinators on the market, obviously was available, wasn't in a current position, aside from taking a linebacker coach job at Texas Tech, but still a, a splash hire. They go pluck Dante Williams from Oregon, one of the top recruiters on the West Coast. They target him, they get him. I mentioned Vic Sawoto, Sean Snyder. There's a difference in the hires then versus now, and I, I'll extend that to, to Robert Steiner. Even though he wasn't the head guy, uh, he had no ties out here. And they went and did a national search, found someone from a program that's doing this department very well, and hired them. So I think I give a lot of credit to the administration for taking a lead role in, in some of these, uh, these moves. And definitely more inspiring than a lot of the moves we saw in a couple of years ago. All right, one, one more move we got to talk about, which maybe flies under the radar, but I think is very important, is Marshall Charrington. USC hires Marshall Charrington in the role of Director of Recruiting Strategy. Why is it important? 
well, first and foremost, it's another body, another asset in the recruiting department, which for many years and years and years was so grossly understaffed compared to the schools that USC competes with in terms of numbers. They, they just were so behind the numbers. They were having people having the, to do the, do the roles of two or three people. When Eric Siskin was here, I mean, he was like the entire department. He was, he was everything. Um, they had, uh, even in the last couple of years, they had one of their major uh, scouting guys also running a social media account. So when Mike Bone got here uh, after the 2019 season, Brandon Sauston sat down with Spencer Harris, the head of the recruiting department, and said, what does this department need? And they had a long meeting, and they, they planned out, well, ideally we'd have someone in this role and this role and this role, and we need you know, a video guy, and we need more social media guys. And they've slowly gone about getting those pieces. The pandemic kind of uh, stalled that process to a degree, uh, but that department has expanded greatly. They brought in Armand Hawkins Jr. as the director of high school relations. They've uh, they hired uh, – Will Stout from LSU as a as a video producer and launched the BLVD Studios um, or Boulevard Studios, however, however you want to say it, as a major wing of their operation and their promotional side of things, which will be huge with the uh, MLI legislation to come. So they've made uh, additions and upgrades to the department, and they they get another one with Marshall Charrington. It comes in from Cal. He's a USC guy, USC alum, but went to Cal and kind of build a nice, a nice reputation in the recruiting business out this way and now comes in. And what's he going to do in that role? Well, I'll tell you. And then Max has some insight to add on this matter. Essentially, his role is going to be another point of contact within the program for recruits, their parents, their coach, uh, coaches, liaison between the coaching staff and the creative team for recruiting needs. And he's going to be involved in strategizing individual recruiting plans for recruits. So you bring in another another guy now. So you you have Spencer Harris who has his hands in everything and runs the department. You have Trey Johnson, Drew Fox working the scouting side of things. Now you have a guy who's going to spend even more time going. What is the plan that's going to help us land the next Corey Foreman? What's important to this guy? Who are the guys we the family members or the coaches we need to get tight with? How can we go about getting on his radar? To have another guy kind of solely responsible for that to me is, is a massive asset, but I don't know Marshall personally. You do Max. Can I tell us about him? I do. Yeah. And it's super, just as you were introing him, it's kind of cool for me to uh, sit here because uh, I mean, I met Marshall my freshman year in college. So he's my age at USC. And I think it'll be cool for USC fans to kind of hear his story a little bit. And I shot him a text after, uh, after I saw him get the job. And uh, it's just super cool because he came to USC we're actually from the same area. So he went to Redmond High School in, uh, in Redmond, Washington, and I went to Skyline High School, and he was kind of a, uh, a Washington high school sports junkie a little bit there, a little bit, and uh, would always kind of message me uh, when I was a re- high school recruit and kind of always loved football, found his way to SC somehow, and then he was a student manager at USC as well. Um, so all my time there. So cool for USC fans to kind of hear that uh, the student managers that – you see uh, snapping footballs and drying footballs off and kind of getting the field and practices ready. <laughs> right. That now Marshall's kind of a hot commodity now uh, in, in terms of uh, a big-time hire. So super cool there. Um, but he's not just necessarily a uh, – I mean, 
the sun is always shining, football's great, kind of I love USC guy. No, he's he's smart, he's savvy, he's super uh, easy to talk to and relate to. And I think the thing that sticks out to me about Marshall and even a guy like Gavin as well um, in the recruiting department too is they love USC. They love USC. And when you talk about guys that are recruiting USC, and for many guys – um, Marshall and Gavin and uh, Armand Hawkins, like those are going to be the first point of contacts that USC recruits have with the school. I know for a guy like myself, when you start talking to USC, like junior year of high school, you're not necessarily going to talk to Clay Helton right away. You're going to start with some of these guys that are easier to contact, um, the guys that are watching your film, and the excitement that Marshall has uh, exudes right away. And I think it's important to note that uh, Marshall, from my perspective on Twitter, he was kind of like Cal's dude in terms of recruiting. And some of the guys that Cal was able to get a little bit from L.A. And obviously, Cal's had some some decent buzz over the past couple years. Like, Marshall was kind of their guy. And Justin Wilcox, obviously a former USC guy, when he went to Cal looking to find guys that can recruit L.A., recruit Southern California, he went and got Marshall Charrington. And Marshall's I mean, 25, 26, he's my age. He's been at Cal for a couple of years. So, I mean, he was young in the business early on at Cal. So I think it's, it's important to note that, hey, that USC was able to go and convince a guy like Marshall, who you'd like to think he's on a good trajectory on his own with, without USC, to have him come over to USC, I think is a great sign and cool story. And I just think there's a lot of really um, – there's, there's a lot of great people in that recruiting department that are passionate about USC – super easy to talk to and connect with that I think uh, is just an awesome sign for USC. And Ryan, you hit the nail on the head. From where the recruiting department was for the high and mighty USC Trojans back when I was a recruit in like 2013 to where it's at now is night and day. They're pouring resources in there. And I think we saw that this past year with uh, the recruiting cycle that USC had. And I think uh, it's only going to increase more. But pump for Marshall. think he'll do a great job. And uh, the, rec- the recruiting department's in, uh, in great hands for sure. It, it really is, and, and uh, I'm not trying to sell anyone on anything, but it, it's, it's the underrated part of the operation. Um, certainly a guy like Dante Williams deserves every ounce of credit he's gotten for what he did with this class, just being the, the point person on so many of those key guys, including Corey Foreman. Hiring him was a, a massive reason why they were able to turn things around. It, it was the biggest reason. But that recruiting department was I thought doing great work even in that lowly 2020 class and they were just so hamstrung by the uncertainty around Clay Helton and having a defensive staff that wasn't good at recruiting and the the, the recruiting department can bring top guys to the doorstep but the coaching staff has to close and I think that, that they've been doing the same job they've been doing last year now this year and they had the coaching staff that could help uh, kind of cash in on what they were – on whatever percentage of the job they were doing, the coaching staff could now do the rest of the, of the job and, and get those guys locked in. And now you add yet another person working full-time on those behind-the-scenes efforts that are so crucial and so vital and that just don't get the attention. I think it's a huge addition. And they still have a few spots to fill. They want another video guy. They want another graphic designer and they need to hire another director of on-campus recruiting to replace Kelsey Winkle, who is no longer with the program. So three more hires to come at some point there, and then that will kind of be the, the finished product of this makeover that 
they started working on really the day after the 2019 season ended. Um, Max, real quick, we can't not talk about the Larry Scott news, which, yeah. again, not a shock because is there anyone more scrutinized or on the hot seat than Larry Scott the last few years, especially this year? But still maybe a surprise that it actually happened. The Pac-12 announces Wednesday night that it is going to part ways with longtime commissioner Larry Scott on June 30th, a year ahead of when his contract was going to end. Uh, according to the Sports Business Journal, he's still going to get paid through the rest of his contract, which is a uh, nice parting gift if you can get it. But uh, a new direction for the Pac-12 as a former Pac-12 athlete, as someone who covers his conference and knows it inside and out, Max, what is your reaction to the end of the Larry Scott era? My reaction is it feels like it's about time. It feels like we've been asking for this for uh, quite some time, since I was a player for sure, and um, certainly in years after as well. I think uh, looking back in terms of kind of the, the time frame of Larry Scott, I feel like COVID certainly expedited things or highlighted a lot of the problems that uh, that the Pac-12 was having, or at least perception-wise. I think those of us um, that are probably listening to this podcast and and guys like myself and Ryan always kind of – we had talked about the perception issues and a lot of the mishaps with with kind of the conference in general over the past couple years. But it felt like with how the COVID um, and the uh, reactionary – um, efforts from Pac-12 conference rather than being proactive with things certainly shed a negative light in on the Pac-12, especially in kind of August, September. And whether you agree with what I just said or not, I think perception is oftentimes reality. And that was the perception nationally is that the Pac-12 was taking a backseat or was not being proactive or was not pre- uh, prepared, that kind of thing. And that falls on the shoulder of Larry Scott. That's not even to mention um, the efforts kind of when uh, Washington and other schools were in college football playoff discussions and, and Larry Scott kind of taking a backseat there and uh, all the narratives there. But I think at the end of the day, Larry Scott's um, legacy with the conference is going to be remembered as a tremendous missed opportunity by the conference to take advantage of a revolutionary time in college football uh, in the in the 2010s, early 2010s, with the media rights changing and the Pac-12 network coming uh, coming to be, and Larry Scott leading the leading the charge there, and kind of the arms race in college football that happened as a result of media rights increasing, and the Pac-12 really taking a back seat to other conferences in that regard. And unfortunately, I think that's how I'll remember Larry Scott. And even though that's I mean, really seven, eight years ago, the conference is still feeling the impacts of that. And so whoever gets the next, uh, whoever replaces them is going to have to try to change that narrative, change that perception, help with those media rights. Uh, As a younger guy, I feel like the perception of kind of a, a conference commissioner was very, hey, don't mess it up kind of thing uh, back in the day versus now it's way more, it's much more of a, hey, you need to be proactive. You need to go to bat for your schools. Hey, you need to go and compete with other conferences kind of thing. Don't feel like Larry Scott did that. The next, the next uh, woman or man who gets the job will certainly need to do that. And uh, the harsh reality is, the Pac-12 conference is in a, is in a hole. Um, think they need to, to elevate, and I think it's great news for USC fans because, I mean, one of the first orders of business, whoever the new commissioner is, I think getting the USC football program back in the limelight and doing everything they can 
to help the USC program, a la not have USC have like short weeks uh, on the road against competitive teams, uh, strategically placing bye weeks for USC, going to bat for USC in terms of CFP conversations when that when that kind of plays out, all the funding, all those things. I think uh, it's good news for USC fans that that a change is coming. Felt like it was long overdue. Felt like COVID kind of highlighted some of the issues even more so than maybe a normal year would. And uh, his days are number. I guess his days uh, his days are over. Well, it'll be officially over June 30th, but yes, it, it, for all intents and purposes, his days yeah. are over. And uh, the pandemic certainly, uh, I think you're right. I think it brought everything to a head. Interestingly, though, it, it also gave him a final chance at maybe saving his, his seat with that Quidel partnership. If, if that had worked out like it was billed to be and the Pac-12 had avoid, avoided the cancellations that befell the rest of the country – and they had, they played a clean six seven game season whatever it was, then maybe maybe that move was enough to keep him, but it didn't work out. No one had more cancellations in the Pac-12, uh, so that was kind of the, the the final hail mary, and it didn't pan out. Um, certainly, I mean, there's a, a litany of things that have fed into why fans and I, I'm sure. Uh, Officials within the conference have wanted to change. Uh, the officiating has been so maligned for so long. The Pac-12 network has ultimately not achieved maybe its full intent. And the failure to secure distribution contracts with DirecTV and other cable providers is huge. Like I, I live in the middle of Los Angeles, and I cannot get the Pac-12 network through my cable package with AT&T TV. I had to buy yep. Sling just to be able to watch the USC basketball road games that I can't cover. I had to I had to buy yeah. Sling to access this network, and most fans aren't going to spend thirty dollars extra a month just to watch uh, Pac-12 road games. So that's a major criticism. Obviously, the fact that he was the highest paid commissioner and uh, some of the negligent spending uh, at the conference level, the fact that he took and gave out to his top lieutenants bonuses while the conference was laying off and furloughing a massive amount of its staff, just a lot of public black eyes. And then ultimately, ultimately, above all, the fact that the PAC 12 has now languished and really fallen behind the other power five conferences. And you're even starting to get conversations of, of is the power four now? And that's just devastating for a, a proud conference, the conference of champions, and Bill uh, Walton voice, baby. <laughs> and 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 if you're a USC fan, it, it's, I mean, you're frustrated at the local level that your program's not where it's it's used to being, but you're also frustrated that the conference is, like you said, giving you no help and is is further undermining the, the whole perception of things. So, I think it's long overdue. It had to happen, and I think that the Pac-12 is in a great position. To uh, to make a really inspired hire here, if they could pay Larry Scott five point four million a year, uh, more than any other conference commissioner, they can they can certainly pony up and and uh, make a splash hire with somebody from another conference or somebody who's been waiting in the wings I've for a heard, spot like uh, this. I've heard Oliver Lux's name mentioned, which I feel like would have uh, have some good splash. Uh, sure, being being Andrew Lux's dad, CFP experience, well respected. 
Long time uh, AD in West Virginia. Yeah. Yeah. We'll be, uh, it will be interesting to, to, to see them. I mean, just as a final note on that, there, there's so few conference commissioner jobs. It's, it's a coveted position if you're in that field, if you're in the athletics administration field in any way. That's kind of as high as you can get. Um, you know, there's athletic director, but then there's conference commissioner. So you have the only job open right now in that field, and you've shown that you can spend a lot of money on it previously. You should be able to go get whoever you want aside from a Greg Sankey or another sitting commissioner who's happy where he's at. Otherwise, you should be able to get anyone you want for that position. And in any walk of life, in any career, it's always ideal to walk into a job where the bar has been set so low and your predecessor was so um, embattled. Yeah, someone's got to be chomping at the bit. What an opportunity. Uh, Max, one last quick question on, on this. How, how much do do college athletes even care or pay attention to that stuff? When you were playing at USC, did you have Larry Scott conversations with teammates? Was it even a, a, a thought at that level? Yeah, and that was kind of the, the, the point I was trying to allude to. The answer is no. I was not even thinking about Larry Scott, but – that was, I mean, 2013, 14, 15, I think, I mean, towards the back half of my USC time, I think that's when you did start thinking about Larry Scott a little bit. And you did start thinking about, man, we could use some help. Man, why are our peers in the SEC and the Big Ten like having, having better experiences or better performance than us? And you start thinking about your conference AD. And that's kind of like the point I'm trying to mention is I feel like Larry Scott before, like before he got in, you weren't even thinking about the, the conference commissioner. It was just kind of a, hey, just do your job, right. don't mess it up, that kind of thing. Versus now, it's a much more, the perception is a much more proactive, you got to go fight to get your conference out there type mentality. And I think that's a big result uh, or because of what Larry Scott did or what he, I mean, the, the, the lack of what he did, I guess, is what you could say. And yeah. to me, yeah. it's always weird kind of. I mean, I don't know Larry Scott, but if you open up your Twitter feed, like I'm sure a lot of our listeners are, it is hard to find a uh, a compliment for, uh, for for Larry Scott or some some well regards, which is always just indelicate deal. But when people are harsh, I think uh, there's reason for it, and I think uh, it's a healthy switch for the conference. Good stuff. Well, hey, great to have you back on the show. Great to reconvene after a, a few weeks uh, away and really hit the news of the of the offseason for USC. Good stuff, Max. This was fun. Thanks, Ryan.